I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 43. And while you turn there, I want to share a little experience I had when Kelly and I first came to town in 1987. We'd come up from Cincinnati and we'd been there for a year or so and we were kind of starting over again in Northern Virginia. Um, We were out of money, but we weren't out of friends. And we had some friends invite us to come and stay with them until we could put together a deposit to rent a house and so on and so forth. And they've got a little farm, uh, 20 acres, right over here on the edge of town. And we'd been there for a couple days, and I thought, well, you know, we need to help out. They've got all this land here. And uh, he was a full-time air traffic controller. And uh, so I went down and said, what can I do to help you out? And he said, have you ever bush hogged? (laughs) I didn't have the slightest idea what that means. (laughs) And he showed me his tractor and the the bush hog attachment, and he said, I need to bush hog all 20 acres, and I don't have time to do it. And the grass was about about three and a half feet high or so. I said, I can do that. Uh, So the next morning, I got up at about 6, 6.30 or so, and I hopped on that tractor, and I rode the tractor all day long. Now, I don't know. For me, riding up and down these rows was kind of cathartic. Uh, you know, I kind of relate it to fishing where you don't have much to think about other than your bobber and your line, or maybe golf where you don't have much to think about other than this little ball going the right way that you want it to go. And, and so riding on that tractor was just a great experience. And, and you could see your progress. You're going up and down these lines and you see this part's mowed and that part's not. And by the end of the day, we're somewhere around seven or eight o'clock. I'd done all 20 acres. And I got off the tractor, and I'm standing on top of the hill, and I'm looking out at 20 acres, and go, but that is beautiful. <laughs> it's just stunning. Everything is the same height, and it's just an absolutely, I, I, I can't get over how good this lawn looks. And my buddy came over, and he said, wow, because you got it all done in one day. I said, yeah, I'm going to do that again sometime. He said, great, let's go have dinner. Well, there's a lesson to be learned from this. I'll get to that in a little bit. But the story is oddly connected to our passage for today. We're in another parable. Uh, The context for this parable, and and, you know, we've been talking for a long time about how important it is to understand context if you're going to understand the parable. Well, the context for this parable is another parable. It's a parable of the sower. Now, we covered the parable of the sower uh, earlier this summer, and the idea behind the parable of the sower was that there's glory in the mud. There's glory in the mud. And, and the premise was that we're all dirt. We're all one of four kinds of dirt. And so there, there was hard dirt. There was rocky dirt. There was dirt with weeds and thorns in it. And then there was rich, fertile soil. And the question is, what kind of dirt are you? Now, believers should be fertile. They should be able to produce some type of fruit. Jesus Christ is the the water of life, and when the water of life blends with our dirt, there should be some recognizable fruit that picks up. And the whole parable on the dirt and the sower was that he was talking about the Pharisees, because the Pharisees weren't producing any type of viable fruit at all. They They were the rocky soil. He did that and pointed out that the Pharisees were producing nothing of value. Then he, then he taught the reason for the parables, why he teaches in the parables. And the reason he does that is that, that the parables are there to distinguish believers from non-believers. 
believers hear the parable the same way they do the word. They're nourished, they're edified, they're engaged, they're drawn in, they begin to grow, they're intrigued, and non-believers don't listen. It doesn't mean anything to them. They don't listen, so they don't hear. So there's no interchange that occurs when a non-believer hears the word. Now, it doesn't mean that unbelievers can't read the Bible and get some sort of moral theme out of it or an objective teaching. It just means that we're we're talking about inner transformation and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So non-believers just don't really care. So that, that led to a question, how do we tell the difference? And we tell the difference by the type of fruit. And, and you know what I'm talking about. You know, frequently we'll be out in the community and we'll run into somebody and there, there will be some sort of unusual connection that we have, just something lying right beneath our spirit that witnesses that there's some peace, there's some joy, there's some happiness in the person here. Uh, now, that's not the only fruit that comes with being... Uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there there are a multitude of different fruits, but that's one of them, is that we have a kinship to them. Sometimes we can see it in each other. Sometimes we we can't see it, uh, but we can see evidence of it. There's scriptures coming out of them, and so on and so forth. There's things that we know about other believers. We tell the difference between believers and unbelievers by seeing and experiencing their lives. By seeing what's going on, what is flowing from them, what should be flowing from us is peace and joy and contentment. And so this is one of the reasons, and I'm just going to do a little sidebar here, this is one of the reasons we come to church on Sunday morning. This is one of the reasons that we gather in the assembly, so that we can see each other face to face, so that we can worship together, so that we can join our voices together and praise the God that we're so thankful to for our salvation so that we can sit and experience the word together so that we can do the sacraments together so that we can see each other and be in each other's presence. Now, I got to tell you something. I was meeting with a guy two weeks ago about the digital church and I thought that was kind of interesting because I thought, well, we have a digital presence. We're on Facebook. We've got downloads for our sermons. We've got got a, 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 a website and so on and so forth. But that's not what this was about. This is about the existence of churches that are only online. And, and he was trying to tell me the virtues of this, and the virtues were, well, you can go at any time. Well, you can listen as long as you want. You can put it on pause and walk away and do what you need to do and then come back later on and do it. And the great thing about it is, is if we set this up right, then we have a virtual congregation. Now, that sounds a little bit intriguing to those of us that are a little bit techy, but I got to tell you something, I don't know that that's a real congregation. There's no face-to-face. There's no relationship being developed. And truth be told, I believe that it's an ultimate manifestation of what can the church do for me. The church is here for me. I'm not here for the church. You know, here at Warrington Bible Fellowship, you guys understand that. We're here for the church. The church is not here for us. So we come to serve. We come to praise God, and we come to learn who the people in our church family is. One of the side benefits of this is you get to have a face-to-face encounter with your teachers. 
It's not somebody that's just existing out there online. It's somebody you can talk to, somebody you can see. Somebody can see, you know, when you look at me, you can see how I live. You can see what's flowing from me. We don't have that benefit when we have digital church. So we see the Holy Spirit in each other. It's a great benefit of coming together as a church. So there are two groups of people in the world, and, you know, it's something... Something that the Jews, one of the many things that the Jews got right, they believed there were only two groups of people in the world. And, you know, we're all familiar with that. They believed there were Jews and there were Gentiles. There were Jews and people who are not Jews. Okay. There are two groups of people in our world. There are believers and there are non-believers. Now, yeah, we, we have a tendency to kind of subdivide that in a lot of different things, but I've got to tell you something. Neither one of these things has to do with nationality, has nothing to do with ethnicity, it has nothing to do with what language you do, what vocation you have, or whether or not you have no vacation. Either you believe in Jesus Christ, or you don't believe in Jesus Christ. So, as we ponder that, it would lead to a question. Now, bear with me for a second. Because the question is this, what do we do about these heathens? I just want you to listen to that question for a second, because the name pops up a lot of times, heathens. And, you know, those of us in the church know who the heathens are. They're the people that don't believe in Jesus Christ. But it, it's a pejorative. Um, it, 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 the, the, our culture is pushing us in these areas of of slotting people and pigeonholing them and identifying them by some association they may have or may not have. And so we're in this, this hostile nature uh, that is developing against the church. And so as we begin to ponder these questions, what do we do about unbelievers? What do we do about heathens? We have to be careful how we frame the question. Because if we're not careful, the way we frame the question leads us to a presumption about what we're supposed to do. Because as soon as I hear, what do we do about these heathens, I think we've got to get rid of them. I mean, they're not us. Is that what's happening here? Is that what Jesus is teaching? There are two groups of people in the world. There are believers and there are non-believers. So, oddly enough... I think that the disciples of Christ, after hearing all these parables and seeing all these differences between the Pharisees and between the disciples and those who were following Christ, I think that they're probably asking themselves the same question. Now, um, you know, we can't find this in Scripture. It's, it's uh, speculation as far as I'm concerned, but it's a natural progression. So how do we know who these people are and what do we do with them? And so the answer to that is here in the parable of the weeds. You see, Jesus is, has this progression in here. He presents these ideas, he explains them, he challenges the people around him, and then, then he tells them what, how they should receive it. So we have two elements. This is the parable of the weeds. There's another one in our series of, of stories that have changed the world. And this parable has two elements to it. We have the information that is divulged in the parable in verses 24 through 30. And then we have the interpretation of the parable. Now, there's a space in there. I'll explain why that space is there. But the interpretation comes in verse 36 through 43. So verses 31 through 35 are a little bit of an excursus, but we'll we'll get into that. What I want to do is I want to look at the information we get in the parable, okay? So that starts in verse 24. 
uh, Jesus, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So the first thing we see, the first bit of information we have is this diligent farmer, this diligent sower. Now, we don't know much about him, but he's probably a good farmer because, just because of this short description we had. The farmer has to make sure that the seed is planted properly. And it, it, it's a little bit more than just scattering seeds. I mean, if you're going to grow a decent crop, you've got you've to till the soil, you've got to furrow the soil, uh, you, you, you have to put the seed down, you have to make sure it's covered, it has to be watered. So we have this sower, this farmer, who's working hard to plant his seed. And, and then in verse 25, he says, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat. Now, the, so weeds among the, the wheat, okay? Now, it, let me tell you something about this word for weeds here. The King James Version calls it tares. Uh, the, the technical word for the type of weed it is is darnel. It's darnel. And the thing about darnel is it's poisonous. And it's growing amongst the wheat. And the other thing about darnel you need to know is you can't tell the difference. It looks just like wheat until it's close to time to being harvested. So that's the type of seeds that are being here. So, and the enemy sows his seeds among the wheat, and he went away. And verse 26 says, So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did, not, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? So the servants are worked up. They're like, did you see the fields? There's weeds out there. And there's an urgency to what they're doing. There's some, there, there's some animation here in how they're approaching the, the master. And, and in verse 27, the master said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you not want us to go and gather them? So the sower, this diligent sower, has discovered that there's a problem. He learns that this, some enemy has snuck in and sowed thistles among the wheat and the servants they want to get to work didn't you see there's a problem out there did you know what's going on let us go in there and take care of it they're ready to rock and there's an urgency to what they're doing they're ready to just run out in the fields and start yanking this stuff up in verse 29 but he the sower said no lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Now here's the dilemma of the sower. What do you do about these weeds? They're not what he planted. He can't harvest them. They're poisonous. They look a lot like wheat. Uh, some care has to be taken, whatever he's done, but they want to pull the thistles out because it might harm the wheat. And he says, hold your horses. Just slow things down. Then, then the sower says in verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers. Now watch this. The reapers are a different designated group of people. You would think he would say, then at harvest time, you can go out and pull the weeds. The weeds. But no, he's talking about the reapers now. So I believe that this is intentional. I believe that he's saying that we're, we're hearing uh, from 
from the author here that the reapers are different than the servants. I think it's very purposeful. So I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there's a decision of the sower. He said he's going to wait. Then he'll sort out the, the weeds from the wheat. He'll sort out the thistles from the wheat, and the thistles will get burned. So there, there's, there's all the information we have. We're going to boil this down to what we know about this story. Here, here, here's what we've seen. We've seen a sower. We've seen that the sower has an enemy. We've seen a field. There has been good seed in the field, and there have been weeds or thistles. There's going to be a harvest. There are going to be reapers in working the harvest, and there's a granary, and there's a furnace. There's all the ingredients for a great story. And we can start drawing conclusions from here, and we can start making up our own interpretations, and Jesus is going to give it to him, but he doesn't do it right away. He has two other truths that he wants to share with them. So instead of going to an interpretation, here's what we see starting in verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and take, make nests in its branches. Then he told them another parable in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Then verse 34 said, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So that's a great little explanation as to why he's doing the parables, but why are they there? Why are these two things in the middle of this singular parable? Well, there are two lessons that are vital to the understanding of what Jesus is trying to teach. And they're both encapsulated in this. Number one, the kingdom of heaven will start out small. The mustard seed was the smallest seed. It will grow into one of the largest plants. But it was going to start out small. And this whole idea about this tree with the birds of the air resting in it is an image for the world. So the, the kingdom of heaven would encompass the entire world. First teaching that he wanted his disciples to know. The second thing was that it would permeate all of creation. The kingdom of heaven would touch every part of creation. And what he's telling the disciples is these guys, these servants that are trying to help the master out need to slow down. kingdom of heaven is not in jeopardy. It's not going to be stopped. It's going to cover the entire world, but it will do it in God's timing. Don't be worried that the crop is going to be ruined. The sower is in charge of that. Now, there are echoes in the interpretation here, but we see the full interpretation right after we've seen these two little parables. And that starts in 36. 
So then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came into him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. They're like, we don't get it. Sounds like a neat story, but tell us what's going on here. So, and he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The sower is Jesus Christ. He's rolling it out step by step. Verse 38, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The field is the world, the good seed are the believers, and the bad seed are the unbelievers. And the enemy who sowed them, verse 39, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And the enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of all history and the reapers are angels. And they're going to gather all of these causes of sin and all of these lawbreakers in verse 42 and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth the furnace is hell we hear a lot about hell these days we hear a lot about how we need to stop talking about it here it is right here those who reject Jesus Christ burn in it The more we cover that up, the more disservice we do to the people that need to hear the truth. Verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The granary in the parable is heaven. So we see this phrase pops up frequently in Jesus' teaching. He who has ears, let him hear. It's not just listen carefully. He's not just saying... You know, if your ears are open, you'll get this. What he's saying is, if you have ears, let this permeate your soul. Let this reach deep down inside you and affect the way you live. Appropriate these things in your life. Become that walking ambassador for the word of God that you're called to be. If you have ears, if you are a believer, allow this to govern your life and govern your actions and govern the relationships you engage in. Don't just listen to it, do it. So there's, there's the information we saw. We saw all of these elements rolled out in detail, kind of intriguing. We saw the interpretation. We heard what it meant. And you know what? We heard what we should learn. But what did we learn? What do we get from this? I mean, I know the angels and the reapers and so on and so forth, but how does this answer the question of what we do about those heathens? Well, the first thing we need to do is change our nomenclature, brothers and sisters. You know, we, we, we live in this culture of confrontation. We live in this culture of division we live in this, this, this atmosphere where we've drawn all of these lines that you can't cross. And the church universal 
has become a victim of that. I praise God that, that you guys do the best you can to stay away from this stuff. But the fact that we have this pejorative word for heathens has to go away. There are only two groups of people in the world. There are only two kinds of people. No matter when you were born, where you were born, how you were born, there are two types of people. There are people who have Jesus, and here's the nomenclature, the new nomenclature. There are people that need Jesus. There are people who have Jesus and people who need Jesus. So the first thing we need to do is change our mindset. Because if we can see those people that don't believe in Jesus Christ as people who need Jesus, we will approach, our, we will approach them differently than if they were some kind of enemy. We have the truth of the word. We're the guardians of it. We're supposed to be the vessels of it. And it goes everywhere. Everything outside that door is the mission field. Everything. There are no enemies. And we, the servants, are here to tend the crop. So there is no, there is no, uh, don't let them in here. Don't, don't allow those immigrants into my country. Don't allow those strange people that don't look like me and don't sound like me into my neighborhood. Don't bring those unusual people into church. There are only people who have Jesus and people who need Jesus. And when we start thinking like that, we can become a force that can change the world. But we're taught by everything we see on the news, in the newspapers, on Facebook, on all the emails that we get, that there are, there are these people and there are those people that are against these people. We're not against anybody. There are people that have Jesus and people that need Jesus. Now, in the, in the, in the parable, they're called weeds. Here's what we don't do with them. We don't pull them up by the roots and throw them away. We don't destroy them. We don't criticize them. We don't judge them. We don't try to determine who is and who isn't. We play that little game in church, don't we? I mean, oh, you agree with me, you're a believer, that's fantastic. But then there's some tension. And, and you've heard it before. The tension occurs. It's unresolved. Somebody goes, oh, I don't know if that guy ever was a believer to begin with. And people start nodding their heads. We don't have that luxury. We're not to judge. Lest we be judged by the standard we judge by. We're not to condemn. We're to be vessels of grace and mercy and love. Now, that doesn't mean that we accept everything. We certainly, when we hear a teaching, we hold it up to the standard of Scripture, but we don't condemn the teacher. We refuse to receive the teaching. We don't condemn it. We have to be careful who we hang out with. 
because it can be an influence on us, but just because I've decided I can't hang out with that person over here that has this particular thing going on in their life, it doesn't mean that I hate them. It doesn't mean that I avoid them. It doesn't mean that I don't share the love of Christ with them. So we have to have some discernment. We need the help of the Holy Spirit with that. We don't just pluck them up and cast them away. We don't disregard them as something less than us. We don't look at them and go, thank you, God, for not making me like that tax collector. Of course, we all learned a lesson in that parable, didn't we? Because at the end of that, most of us, including me, want to go, thank you, God, for not making me like that Pharisee. And I fall into the same self-righteousness that the Pharisee did. So those are the things we don't do. What do we do? Well, to those people who need Jesus that are outside the church, we don't have to come up with a plan. Paul's already given us one in the book of Romans, in chapter 12, verse 14. Go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. What do we do about people outside the church that need Jesus? Listen to what Paul says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, just do a little word play with me, okay? And I want you to substitute bless those who persecute you with bless those Republicans. Bless those Democrats. Bless those independents. Bless those immigrants. Bless those people that are living alternative lifestyles. Bless those people that are not like me. Bless them and do not curse them. Paul couldn't be more clear. There's no protest rally against this. There's no active movement, lobbying movement against that. There's only blessing. Rejoice with those who rejoice. When they're happy, rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You know, I, I love this rejoice with those who rejoice because I hear things like, John, would you ever go to a gay wedding? And I'll go, yeah, I think I would. And they go, oh, you can't do that. You're endorsing gay marriage. Where does it say that? John, don't sit with those sinners. Didn't they tell Jesus that? I'm not endorsing anything. I'm trying to bless. Am I affirming? No. But I want to bless. I want to be a source of light. I want to be a source of love. I want to be a source of compassion. I want to be a source of mercy because the person that I'm directing that to needs Jesus. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with some folks that think the way you do.
Live peaceably with the people on your block because you need their help when the neighborhood watch comes up. Live peaceably with the people in your church because they think like you do. What's the scripture say? Live peaceably with all. I think the church today, the universal church, has lost the bubble on that one. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's our marching orders on people outside the church. What if they're in the church? Well, Pastor Scott read it a little bit earlier. We've got marching orders for that too. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. It's a couple pages back. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There are people that have Jesus and people that need Jesus. If we go rushing in, trying to get ahead of what God's doing, we can do a lot of damage. At the end of the day, when I had been so proud of my bush hogging, my friend and his wife came and stood behind me. We're looking out over the farm, and I've got this smug smile on my face. And she said, that looks fantastic. And I'm like, yes, I know. And she said, you see that spot over there by the barn? I said, yeah. That big spot? Yeah. That was my garden. <laughs> In trying to do good, I actually did more damage than good that I had done. And that's what, that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Do good. Make sure you're doing good. Keep it to these parameters here. Don't rush in and do damage. Let God take care of the weeds. Let's pray.